Now as we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, you bow your heads for a word of prayer. We come here, O God, out of our separateness. We are different people. We have different stories. And we come from different places this morning, some nearby, some on the other side of the world. On this day, help us to get beyond our differences and to know something of our oneness and use our experiences this morning in your ongoing project of reconciling the whole world through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Send now your Holy Spirit that we will have ears to hear what you are saying to the church today. In your son's name we pray, amen. Kevin has been going through the Gospel of John, and we are continuing that in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus did this, the first of his signs. If you study the Gospels, you'll discover that first things matter. Mark describes the exorcism of a demon as the first thing that Jesus does. And Luke reports the first thing Jesus did is preach a sermon of release and freedom and healing. And each of these things matter because they set the tone and the theological agenda for those particular Gospels. And so today we continue in John's Gospel, and John makes these enormous claims about Jesus in the first chapter. The eternal word made flesh, full of grace upon grace, truth, the light of every human being. And then suddenly, 
the light and the life of the entire world through whom everything was made, is at a wedding with his mom. This is the logos of the universe, we're told. And the very first thing he does, the first sign which is to reveal his glory, is that he restocks a bar at a wedding? That's the miracle? Really? I mean, that's, that's your first out of the gate miracle? John calls these miracles signs, and that's a giveaway right there. Because signs are different than miracles, in that they point beyond the event to something else. Signs in the book of John are like clues that reveal who Jesus is and what God is like. It's what we call an allegory, where every single element is a symbol. Every gesture, every detail suggests the presence of meaning beneath meaning. For instance, did you know that John's gospel is a recapitulation and a retelling of the creation story in Genesis? How does Genesis start? In the beginning, God created. And how does John start? In the beginning was the word. And in today's passage about turning water into wine, it says it starts on the third day. And what happens on the third day in creation? God separates waters, creates growing things, vines, and fruit. John lists seven signs all together. And remember, seven is a holy number in Scripture. It's a number of perfection and completion. The seven days of creation, the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Still, this first sign, it, it feels different than the others. And in case you need a review, here they are in no particular order. Walking on water, three healings, feeding 5,000 with a kid's lunch, raising a guy from the dead, and keeping the party going a few more days? One of these signs is not like the other. I mean, let's just ask the question point blank. Why would Jesus Christ, in his first sign, his calling card, as it were, why would he do this? Well, it actually doesn't even seem like it was his idea. He does it because his mama tells him to. It's his mom who first notices the problem. They have no wine, she says. And this would have been a shocking thing, a huge deal in first century Palestine. It wasn't just an enormous social disgrace, but a terrible omen for the couple. They have no wine. When the writers of scripture try to express what hope is, that great eschatological hope for what's to come, they imagine enormous amounts of wine. When hope is fulfilled, Amos says, the mountains will drip with sweet wine 
and all the hills will flow with it. Isaiah imagines the consummation of God's kingdom as God making a feast for all peoples. A feast, he says, of well-aged wine. And according to ancient rabbis, without wine, there is no joy. So when Mary says they have no wine, it's, it's not like an offhanded observation. No, it's a, it's a very concise expression of existential hopelessness. They have no wine. There's, there's no joy. There's no hope. Or at least not enough to get through the day. There's not enough. They've run out of it. It seems like a very real and very terrible truth. There isn't enough. They have no wine. With those words, Mary speaks a truth about our lives, a truth that at some point we all experience. There comes a day when the wine gives out. There's not enough hope or healing kindness, warmth. There's not enough love, not enough human empathy. There's not enough wine, Mary says, at a wedding. And wedding imagery is as important in the Bible as the wine imagery is. It's all over the Bible. In Isaiah, it's the land that is married to God. Jeremiah says that God is married to Israel. And in Revelation, there's this marriage feast between the Lamb and the Bride of Christ. The church's relationship to Jesus is one of marriage. The image suggests intimacy and union. It's a lover you can count on to be with you through all of life and all its banal and terrible and beautiful events. And you know, for all their festivity, there's also a lot of subtext of anxiety, at least in most of the weddings I've been involved in. Hope and failure till death do us part. Flowers, food, and family dynamics. Worries and fears all sort of writhing under the surface. Mary seems to recognize it all. They have no more wine. It's a statement that's really a question, a request. And Jesus' answer comes off a little harsh, sounding a bit like a teenager. So what, Mom? I should have hired a better wedding planner. <laughs> but have you ever wondered what takes place between verses 4 and verses 5? You know, between, woman, what concern is that to you and me? It's, it's not my hour, right? And in verse 5, when Mary says, do whatever he tells you. I, I imagine Mary fixed Jesus with one of those looks, those mom looks that can't be put into words. You know what the mom look is. It says, you will do what I have asked. I am your mother. <laughs> I did not birth you in a barn while running from the government so that you could call me woman. Now make some dang wine. 
You know that look, right? <laughs> Mary seems to disregard her son's dismissal. Like maybe she knows something and trusts him to do something about the situation. She insists on voicing this archetypal anxiety that there's not enough warmth or light or love or wine, not enough to cover what the world needs and people are thirsty. And Jesus hears her. And then he does this, this crazy thing. He, he looks around to see what he can use and and then like some Palestinian MacGyver, he finds six water jars, six. You remember the number seven is that number of perfection and completion. Well, in the ancient world, six was not a holy number, far from it. Six was seen as a deficient number, imperfect, lacking. Six jars is somehow not enough. But these aren't just any jars. Scripture says these were the jars used for purification. Now hold on. He could have filled the actual wine jars, you know, those jugs that they used before, with actual water to turn into wine. That would have been the logical miracle, if there is such a thing. But instead, Jesus takes six ceremonial purification jars and has those filled with water to turn into wine. The symbolism is so clear, John doesn't want us to miss it. Jesus takes these pots of water, water designed for ritual purification, for spiritual cleansing, and he turns that water into wine for everyone to drink. Much of the history of religion has been about ceremonial washing. It's been all about purification, purification, trying to be clean, trying to be perfect. But instead of bringing the joy of salvation, it brought division and pain and exclusion always feeling we're not worthy enough. We're not perfect enough. And Jesus here is, is taking this substance that was all caught up in these ideas of cleanness and uncleanness, all caught up in notions about what separates us from each other. And he turns it into something designed to be shared. Something that eases our anxiety about all the not enoughs in our world. Jesus is taking these six jars, deficient and lacking, and they're empty. These jars aren't going to get you anywhere. And he says, fill them to the brim with wine. And these jars are huge each holding 20 or 30 gallons, up to 180 gallons, that's, that's like a thousand bottles of wine. It seems so extra. That's the phrase the kids are using these days. It took me a while to understand that expression, to be honest. I first heard it in our young adult small group. Someone was complaining about 
how her friend said that she was so extra. And I couldn't understand what was wrong with that. Extra special? Extra smart? Extra great? I understand it now. It's not meant to be a compliment. It means you're a little too much. I wonder if the people thought this miracle was a little extra. He fills these containers that people use to purify themselves with wine. It's like a bit like filling a bathtub full of wine or the pump bottles of Purell. Like, like the faucets start running with wine, good wine. It's kind of strange and wild, a little bit funny, and almost impolite somehow. Like, imagine you're at a wedding and there's a lot of people and, and it's at a time when everyone is sensitive to COVID and careful about washing their hands. It's the polite thing, it's the, it's the safe thing. And Jesus then goes around filling up all the hand sanitizers with good wine. I mean, are people grateful? Or are they like, what the heck? I don't know if I'd want to drink wine, even good wine, out of a hand sanitizer. It's like a beautiful move, but it's also really messing with things. Just kind of Jesus' MO, right? We have all sorts of rituals that are important to us, our religious practice. Or just think how we, we think that one should properly conduct themselves in the world. We have rules that it seems important for people to obey. And then Jesus takes these containers necessary for people to obey those rules, and he doesn't exactly reject them. No, he, but he fills them with something delightful, like wine. Commentators are worried about people reading this as if Jesus might be offending the religious peoples here. It's not about offense, they say. It's about generosity, excessive abundance. But maybe that is occasionally offensive to religious people. Excess, excessive joy, excessive generosity, excessive passion, excessive wine? Yeah, we generally respect moderation. Jesus makes sure there's enough, but way more than enough. And I wonder if people's reactions to this were a little mixed. I wonder if there were some who really didn't even want to drink that wine. It would have been happier to have the water so that they could wash their hands. Maybe some people didn't want to drink the good wine because it seemed to interfere with the rules. Maybe the good wine is always there for the drinking, but we're a little afraid about what drinking it might mean. Loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving our enemies, serving God instead of mammon, Maybe 
the sheer excess of the life and love of God might be a little too extra, a little too much for us. So maybe we don't always choose to drink it. Like we don't know how to enter into this religion as a love affair or an intoxicating wedding banquet. And so we all keep going back to those six empty jars of purifying water and keep finding ways to scrub up, to scrub up our filthy lives. As one commentator put it, Jesus turned water into wine, yet for 2,000 years, it seems the church has been trying to turn that wine back into water. But Jesus keeps coming off this sort of wild way throughout John. A little too much of something. Too much for the dominant ideology to bear. The number one complaint about Jesus was that he was always at table with all the wrong people. Who's this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them, Luke says. Look at this glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. Talking to a Samaritan woman? He isn't even supposed to talk to a woman, much less a foreigner, much less ask her for a drink. Talking about water he can provide that flows unstoppably, quenching every thirst. Jesus doesn't really stay in the bounds. He's practically unseemly. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that's what grace is like sometimes. I think maybe that it might upset some things, the rituals and the obligations of life. This story is about a miracle of excess, but maybe we're more comfortable with moderation in all things, even grace. Maybe there's rules we'd like God to follow, actually. Jesus comes around acting like this. No wonder the religious authorities wanted to kill him. He seems genuinely dangerous to the system, the organization, the institution. I mean, really. On the night of his arrest, Jesus was at supper with his disciples and he told them that this wine was his blood. And you could tell he was troubled and clearly thinking about something else. And in this rare moment, John actually tells us what he's thinking. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Now all of a sudden, Jesus' hesitation at the wedding makes sense. When he said to his mom, woman, my hour has not yet come, he's not saying, I'm not ready to do a miracle yet. No, throughout scripture, when Jesus speaks of his hour, he's talking about the hour of his death. Tim Keller suggests that maybe Jesus' reluctance to step in is because he's thinking of his own wedding day, that marriage supper of the Lamb that Revelation talks about, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Could it be when Mary tells him that the wine is out and people are thirsty, 
He's not just thinking about those few at the wedding, but all of humanity. It would explain the excessive response. I mean, 180 gallons? Surely that's too much. But maybe it's not meant only for you and for me at the party. I mean, we can try and keep 180 gallons of wine for ourselves, but it'll just become something like vinegar unless it's shared. And in Jesus, God is reconciling all creation to God's self, not just his own religion and his own people. And I think this is why Mary is called woman here. He's upsetting society and religion's definitions of family and stranger, pure and impure, who's in and who's out. You see, Mary only shows up twice in John's gospel. In both times, Jesus calls her woman. Here at the wedding in Cana and at the foot of the cross. She's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end. The other passage in John reads like this. Standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, I am thirsty. It's at the cross where this first sign begins to make some sense. Jesus calls his mother woman, initiating an adoption between her and the beloved disciple and creating a new kinship that we all share. A kinship in which her identity is not based on country, blood, or religion, but on the belovedness, our belovedness, as God's children. Mary was there for Jesus' first sign, refusing to be silent because people were thirsty. And she was there for Jesus' last breath, when he is now the one who is thirsty. Because he poured himself out so that our empty lives may be filled to the brim with wine, good wine, enough for all flowing over. Mary didn't need to point out the suffering to Jesus anymore for he knew it now intimately. He knew it as deeply as he felt his own dry tongue and as sharply as he felt that thirst. Jesus is thirsty here. But instead of the fine wine he came to give, he was given the bitter wine of greed and sin. It all came full circle. And after he drank, he said, it is finished. And he died. But the good news is that is not the final word. After all, John reminds us that this wedding was on the third day. It's on the third day that Jesus transformed water into wine. But we also know another third day, just at daybreak. 
The day suffering was transformed into glory. The day despair was transformed into rejoicing. The day death died and was transformed into new life. The day of resurrection. On that day, Jesus transformed the water of purification into the wine of new creation, the wine of a radical new family. This is my blood poured out for all of you. Of all the things I could tell you, Jesus says, of all the signs I could show you, this is the first. This is primary. This is what I came to do. World Communion Sunday. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And you'll hear the words from the prayer of great thanksgiving that's found in our Book of Common Worship. And it says, a few lines in there, it says, Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, and upon these your gifts of bread and wine. That the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body of Christ. It's really kind of a bold prayer. Pour out your spirit upon us? Are we really ready for that? The last time I saw that happen was at Pentecost, when the spirit was poured out among all those gathered there in that upper room, and they began speaking in different languages so that the whole world could understand. And those witnessing it said about them, they are filled with new wine which is in a sense true. Because when we invite the anarchic spirit into this solemn occasion, we better watch out. It's like unleashing the intoxicating God of excessive life and love and grace, institution bursting, boundary breaking, uncontainable mercy to crash our little ceremony, our little ritual. We drink that wine, the excessive love, and it might be a little too much to drink. The death of death, and thus the excess of life. So maybe that's why we have just a little bit. It might rattle the edge where all our jars are set up neatly. But we are invited to come and drink the life and the love of Christ, the one who has saved the best wine until last. Thanks be to God.